of course, the, the spoon didn't move. And um, he felt like he was inundated with doubts for, for years after. If you're struggling with doubts, and all of us are familiar with doubts, this is especially a, a passage for you. Because, because in this passage, when you feel like you are not knowing the Lord, what he does is, is he is delighted to speak to you. He's delighted to reveal himself. One of his great desires is that you would know him in a way that you know no other, in a way that he is greater than anything, anyone you could possibly imagine. So if you struggle with doubts today, this is the, this is the passage in which to, to come. And here's what he's said to you so far in the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus. He, we talked about a burning bush. What do you do with a burning bush? You haven't seen them. But what he's saying to you in the midst of a burning bush is he is the God who is not merely far away. He is the God who is here. He is here. And by the way, he is the God who also identifies himself as the I am. That means that he always has been and always will be. It also means that he doesn't change. He doesn't go through phases of life. He's not a child, then he grows up and he puts away childish things and he moves on to other, other parts of his growth. It means the God you hear in this passage is the God who is here with you right now. So he is eager in the midst of your doubts for you to know a bit more of him. So the... The call is, listen. Listen to how he reveals himself. Listen, I won't call in the back two rows, I promise, but think as though I could ask you to do a sermon response to this at any particular moment. Bring that kind of listening as this is a vivid moment in history where God has revealed himself. We're going to retell it this way. The story is about the plagues, and we are going to retell it uh, in the spirit of the Lord Jesus speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and revealing to them how everything in Scripture was about him. And we want to make sure that Jesus is dominant and clear in this particular passage. The story, as you know, is Israel is now enslaved in Egypt, and God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and let his people go, because that's who God is. He wants his people for himself, and, and he will indeed do it. So he's going to say, let my people go. But recognize also that this is not simply a story about Pharaoh and Moses. This is a matter of two very different kingdoms, the kingdom of the world, actually the kingdom of Satan himself, who Pharaoh is the mouthpiece for, and the kingdom of God is coming, and nothing will overpower it. So it's a story today that has its roots in history. And you will find through these plagues a predictable pattern. The Lord, through Moses, will say, let my people go to worship me, to come to me, to enjoy me, uh, and release them from their bondage. And then he will say, if you don't let them go, here's a warning. This is what I will do. And then God sends a plague. And Pharaoh responds to the plague with, no, I, I will not let the people go. That's the, 
That's the rhythm that you're going to find here. Uh, in the midst of it, you're going to find that creation is getting quite hyper. Uh, creation is, is not silent. And so you're going to see the God who is the creator of all things responding to his word. Let's pick up the action here. This is the first plague. Pharaoh is at the Nile River, and he is apparently there. He's there every morning. This is what he would do. He would worship the god of the Nile, who is one of the prominent gods. And this is where the Lord meets him through Moses. Uh, Matt McManus, if I could ask you to read the particular passage that you see in the bulletin. And just stay seated. Super. All right, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of heaven, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With this staff in my hand, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Moses will say a little bit later uh, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this could, this could all be over very quickly. The Lord could easily destroy you and all Egypt as a way to let me go. But as a way, he says, to display his power to Egypt and to Israel and to us, he will have multiple ways that he reveals himself. And it begins here. A god is in view, the god of the Nile, and the Lord says through Moses to Pharaoh, representative of the world itself, mouthpiece for Satan himself, let them go. He warns them that the Nile will go red like blood if he doesn't. Uh, I guess there's a question, is it actual blood or is it red? You could, it could be either way. My own sense of, of getting this, the, the idea of how God works in this passage, it is, I, I lean toward it turns red and deathly rather than blood. The, the way God works here is he, is he does things in creation that are likely things that happen, but they are exaggerated and intensified at his word. I suspect the, the Nile has turned blood. Sherry and I with our family went to uh, Bay of Fundy and Prince Edward Island this summer. And if you go up Bay of Fundy, it's, you know, it's cool because it has these big tides. But as you go up, it's, it's red. It's, it's just pure red because the, the water is moving so much and it stirs up the bottom. I was looking at this red, red little river one day, and there was a person who knew about it. It was a national park. And I said, it's so, it's so pastoral. You, you never see a boat on, on this river. And the person said, that's because the river is, ultimate, is, is truly dead. There is not one living thing that can survive within this redness. I would suspect that there's something more like that that is taking place. But the Lord at his command, he turns the river red and nothing can survive in it. In this particular case, the magicians, 
Don't ask me questions on this. Maybe, maybe during, during uh, lunch we can talk about it. The magicians of Egypt seemed to be able to imitate this. How did they do it? Perhaps there was a bucket of water, and they, they turned it red. How did they do it? I don't know how they do it. It doesn't really matter how they, they did it. And, and Pharaoh uses it as an occasion to say, no, I will not indeed let you go. And instead of that being the end of the story, for our benefit, the Lord wants us to know he is a God like no other, and so the story is going to continue. Now, the next, the next uh, plague you find here is the plague of frogs. And there's a certain sense to it. The, if, if the water is dead, the frogs are going to come out of the water. They're not going to live in the water anymore. Uh, and so it is, makes some sense that there would be now an infestation of, God, of frogs, but it's done at the very command of, of God. The waterways can't sustain life. Uh, Satan, uh, Satan, Pharaoh is warned that if he does not let his, the people go, the frogs will, will come, and indeed, they come. Um, it's okay to get grossed out by this. We're going to go through it fairly quickly. But if you want to get grossed out on the way, all the better, because I think that's part of the intent of this. Um, so, so those of you who are visual, just real briefly, you, you imagine frogs everywhere. You, there's no place you can step without stepping on a frog. Uh, there's no place you can sleep without squishing another frog. It, it, those places do not exist. The frogs have come out of the water, and they are everywhere. The magicians, by the way, they imitated this on a small scale, which doesn't seem to help their cause. Now there, it seems like there are more frogs that are coming. Uh, but, 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 but Pharaoh does this. He recognizes the magicians can do some things, but they can't do others. And he prays that, he, prays, he asks Moses to pray that there would be deliverance from these frogs. The purpose of these plagues is that God would be known above all others. And, and Satan is beginning to recognize that indeed, there, there are things about this God that only he can do. And Moses prays for a deliverance of the frogs, and, and he does this. He says, by the way, I'll do this. Uh, tell me when you want the frogs to leave, and I will pray to my God, and he will have the frogs leave then. And he said, tomorrow. I don't know why he didn't say, like, next two minutes. Uh, but he said, tomorrow. And indeed, the frogs all died, but there was no specificity in, in, Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's request. And so the frogs are dead, and they are dead everywhere. It's not that they jumped off into the desert somewhere, but they are now dead everywhere. So as a result, you can imagine that he is not listening. There's going to be another plague. And if there is something dead, you're going to have, you're going to have gnats, and you're going to have flies. And that's what we're going to find next. But at this point, I think it's worthy to remember that the one who speaks to Moses, the one to whom all creation hears, is Jesus Christ. Women read Colossians last year. This is what they read. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Everything was created through him and for him, and he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. 
This is Jesus who is speaking through Moses and demonstrating that he is indeed the mighty God. If you have doubts, this is who he is now. This is who he was then, but he hasn't changed. This is who he is now. And, and Moses asks of Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, if you don't, here is what is going to happen. From the dust of the earth, what you're going to find is creation just sort of disintegrating uh, at this point. From the dust of the earth, these gnats are going to come out. Now, I don't, I don't know. What, nobody knows specifically what the gnats are. But the worst thing in our backyard, we call them the noceums. Well, actually, Sherry calls them the noceums. And I've been calling them that for, for years. You can't see them land, but, but they are vicious. They have all these bites. They're not mosquitoes. You can at least have an honest shot at slapping a mosquito. But in no see them, they're just going to get you. Well, the dust is, is now, it becomes this, this, this plague of gnats. And they are everywhere. They're in your nose. They're in your mouth. They're in your ears. And they're not just sort of lingering. They are, they are biting. And at this point, the magicians say this. This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. The Lord, in, in these plagues, is revealing himself that there is no one like him to Israel and to Egypt, and people are beginning to get it. People who were doubters, now even the magicians are, are believing these things. This is the very finger of God. They see who this God is, and other people in Egypt will see, but Pharaoh is committed to protecting his power, so it goes into the next plague. When you have dead animals all around, you'll have gnats. You also have flies, and the Lord is going to bring flies. As creation sort of, sort of disintegrates around you, uh, flies which sort of had boundaries uh, that, that didn't come in total swarms, now they come throughout the earth, and, and um, but there's something that, that begins to change here. Uh, the Lord now makes a distinction between his people and Egypt. Uh, there is a way he protects his people. Why does he do that? We don't, why does he choose now to do it? We don't know. But he is, he is choosing to make a distinction between Egypt and in the rest of the world. He will somehow be a refuge for Egypt. This is who your God is. This is who he was, and this is who he is now. The flies come. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go, but, but you can't go very far. You can only stay here. Moses says, there's no negotiations about this. We're going to leave a three-day journey. And then the flies are gone, and Pharaoh says, no, you cannot go. The next plague is to the animals. You're watching creation, again, just disintegrate. It's the dust of the earth. It's the, it's, it's the sky being infested, and now animals are going to be affected with disease. The Lord, the, the Lord comes by way of Moses, let my people go. He says, no, they are warned. he's warned again. He's warned that there will be a plague on the livestock and there is a plague on the livestock. The only thing Pharaoh does differently here is he gets a message from Goshen. Are the people there affected by this disease or not? Are there animals living or are they not? And the report comes back that indeed they are living. But it is not enough for the people to go. 
And God is going to do another plague, and he does it for us. To demonstrate to us that he is the God who is greater than all others. There is none like him. Uh, the next one moves to a, a plague of boils. It's going to be the boils on people. You ever had a boil before? If you never had a boil before, they're really, really nasty, they're, and they're really gross. Uh, if you have a boil, if you have one boil on your body, it consumes you. All you know is, is this particular pain. People, be grossed out. There are boils everywhere on people's body and even on the animals. Uh, this is the interesting part here is, is the beginning of this particular plague. Moses goes to the furnace, the furnaces of Egypt, takes dust and, and throws it up to, to symbolize the disease that's coming. It was the very furnaces where the children of Israel had to labor with these bricks without straw. There's something sort of symmetrical and appropriate in all this. And he says, no, I won't let the people go. He then moves to a hailstorm. And this is not a hailstorm like anything we have ever heard. He says, watch, because not only are you going to see this, but you're going to tell your kids about this one. This is a demonstration that God truly is over all. Uh, we're watching creation, again, in some ways being uncreated. Order moves into some kind of chaos. The people are warned this time. Bring everything in from this storm and some of the people in Egypt do because they have learned, indeed, they have heard the great God who has spoken, and they listen to him. So some of them bring everything on in, and then, then it's not just hail that is persistent and destroys, it levels the, the things that were growing on the earth, but it's also thunder, it's also fire, which is the way that God is going to reveal himself uh, soon on Mount Sinai. And he says, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. Um, why is he doing this? So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Pharaoh says, I have sinned. The Lord is right. And he asks for deliverance and he receives deliverance. And then he says, no. He, he, he reneges and he says, no, you can't leave. The next plague is the plague of locusts. Whatever was not affected by the hail is now affected by this plague of locusts. Um, everything is devastated. You look out over the earth, and it, it's Lion King kinds of things. Everything that was once dead, uh, once alive, is now utterly destitute. Um, go worship, he says, but, um, but who's going to go? You can't take your cattle with you. He's negotiating again. And he reneges. He won't let the people go. And, and then it moves to the ninth plague. Uh, this will round out the plagues until the Passover that we'll be probably discuss discussing next week. There's something symmetrical about this. The, the plagues began with God's authority over the gods of the world, the god of the Nile. And now, as you, you probably know from Egypt, the sun and the moon were hugely important gods. And God is going to show his authority over the sun and the moon. And he's going to bring darkness. Darkness is not a cool thing. He's going to bring darkness over the land. Meanwhile, Israel continues to be spared. Uh, Marcella, if you, could, if you could read that passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Let's take an ancient story and see if we can gather it together to begin to budge perhaps the, our own doubts that we, that we live with. The, the words to us probably begin here. Jesus introduces himself to you as the creator God. This is, this is an entrance into knowing our God. He does things big. And he is more powerful than, than you could ever imagine. The images you have of power, storms, uh, surf, mountains that are, that are unmovable, whatever images you have, Jesus introduces you to him by way of the power that he has demonstrated in his creation. There is indeed no one like him. In, Israel, in, in, in India, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of God, hundreds of thousands. But there is not one God who is the maker of heaven and earth. No one would be audacious enough to make that particular claim. Jesus is the one who is now coming to us and saying he is the maker of all things. Creation and, and us within it. He is the one, he says in Colossians, he holds it all together actively right now. This is why we're, we're here presently. Now expect creation to get a little bit restless when he returns and until he returns. And in some ways we can say that are there times where Jesus releases his grip on creation, releases it just a little bit for our benefit to be able to see his great power unfolding in front of us. The book of Revelation has a, another picture for this. It's, it's bowls that are being poured out from heaven. And creation is, is, is showing these pains of waiting for it to be fundamentally redeemed. He comes to you as as the God of all creation, who every once in a while will loosen things up a little bit as a way to grab our attention. This is who he is. How does he speak to those who oppose him? 
This is astounding. Let me, let me tell you who he is. He, is. he is the one who, to those who oppose him, he reveals himself. He, he identifies himself. He advertises his name and his greatness. And he gives opportunities to listen. Nine different opportunities so far. And many people did listen. Magicians listened. People in, in Egypt listened. Uh, people in Egypt listened who even gave, gave their goods to the Israelites as they left because they knew the Israelites were with the true God and the true God was with them. What, who would do such a thing with his enemies? Who invites them and invites them and, and calls them to listen, looks to get their attention, even responds to the requests. Pharaoh says, stop, please relent, and he does. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the judge of the world would, would reveal himself in such a powerful way? He brings physical signs to the world around us of his greatness. But, but isn't it true that those things that we can see in our, with our eyes, they are revealers of even more profound spiritual realities, things that are even bigger. Isn't it true that, that for example, with the, with the devastation of the earth, isn't it true that, that so many people who don't know Jesus, there is a sense of devastation within? They, they come to a point often at the end of their lives where they feel like they have absolutely nothing. They have nothing. This is the work of Christ, even in those who oppose him. To see that indeed there is nothing that we can find in this world that's going to satisfy, that's going to fill us up, that has any endurance. What you will find in the heart of those who who don't know Jesus, or don't want to know Jesus, you will find a kind of darkness where you'll find fears that, that are summoned quickly. You'll find helplessness that's exposed. You'll find vulnerabilities. It's God's way of speaking that, that we need him and, and we need him alone. What do we do? We, we pray for the world that his kingdom would come. His name would be known to our friends, to our neighbors, and to the world, which, is he, which he is pleased to do. Now, to you. To you, I guess the question is, in your doubts, how does he come to you? By the way, let me read this. This uh, little comment by George MacDonald. A man may be haunted with doubts and only grow thereby in faith. Doubts are the messengers of the living one, to be honest. There are early knocks on the door of things that are not yet, but will be understood. The difference between doubts and unbelief is doubts are open. You're willing to listen in the midst of doubt. Unbelief is closed and hardened. You're saying, I simply don't want to hear. I don't want, I, I, my eyes are blind to the greatness of who this God is. Here's the question. I'm gonna, let's assume, and I think this is a fair assumption, that all of us in this particular story are of Israel. You were here voluntarily or your parents have brought you here. Either way, either way, that places you in a different group. The question is, why would you be spared? What is it about you that has spared some of these plagues that fall on the world and that fall on the human heart? That's, it's not because you are, 
you're better than. You have been foreseen as someone who is going to be gooder than the rest of the world around you. So the question is, what, what is it that is unique about you, that you would be protected and shielded? You would have a refuge somewhere. And it's, it's this. Um, these are the details that are revealed a bit later. That the one who, who sends judgment so his name can be known is also the one who takes judgment upon himself. The one who pours bowls of wrath where, where it's as if creation is melting to get our attention is also the one who has taken the wrath on himself. You find this story in scripture of, of the cup of God's wrath being poured out, but Jesus is the one who decides that he will drink it. And at the Last Supper, one of the cups he drinks is indeed the cup of God's very wrath, which is the only reason that we are spared. The wrath, he chooses to have the wrath poured out on him. So you see in this story of darkness, one of the, one of the last and great plagues, the, it, it, what do you find at the cross? At the cross, there is three hours of darkness, three days of darkness in, in Egypt, three hours of darkness when Jesus is crucified as, as a way to demonstrate that indeed, that he even took the darkness on himself so we can live in, in light. Now here, here's the challenge that we can so easily live on the surface of life and, and not see these deeper realities of the God who is over all things, who pours out bowls so his name can be known. And if his name is not known now, it will be named, and he will be known by, by all. Um, the challenge is that sometimes it seems remote, Uh, our family, when our daughters were younger, we, um, we were at a beach in California, and it was called Laguna Beach, and Laguna Beach has this, this pretty significant shore break. We were out with Lindsay, our oldest daughter. I think she was six at the time. And, and um, we were, were just right next to her. She's a pr pretty good, strong swimmer. We're close to the beach. But all of a sudden, she got sucked out. She got sucked out in a way there, I, I didn't even have time to grab her. And as I watched her being sucked out, I saw every once in a while in, in, in these beach areas, you will have this huge roguish kind of wave that comes through. All of a sudden, I saw this wave that was building up. And the surfers even, even got they, they quickly got out of the water. They, they, they saw it coming from a distance, which we did not. And here I'm watching my daughter being sucked out into this huge wave. And, and, and she's just, just swimming around like it's just another great day. She, the wave is, is just about beginning to break, and, and she goes over the crest right before it crashes. And it just simply felt like a, like a roller coaster ride to her. So we finally get out to her, and, and she's chuckling and enjoying herself. We, 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 you know, we, we bring her into the, the beach. And meanwhile, these surfers come up to her and say, wow, I can't believe you went out in that big wave. It's just... They didn't realize it was the parents' incompetence. Um, the, the, the reason I tell you this is because 
is because we're talking about spiritual realities that speak to your doubts. And, and our default can sometimes be like Lindsay in the waves, where you, you, you didn't know that you had a refuge. You didn't know that you were being protected by this sucker that could eat you up and spit you out. You had no idea. Uh, you just thought it was another day. Here's, here's our challenge. You encounter this passage in Galatians 3. Jesus Christ rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He rescued us from the plagues because he took the plagues on himself. That is a reality. But sometimes we can read through that and say, does it really matter? Oftentimes when I move into a text, the, there are things in my life that make the text more relevant to me. This, this past week, I, I was listening to a devotional. We have devotionals at, at my work, before work. And it was this beautiful passage about things like Galatians chapter 3. Jesus Christ rescued us from the curse of the law by taking the curse on himself. Now, here's the, here's the thing. I, I was unmoved by it. It was a beautiful passage. It was, it, was, it was spiritual realities that I needed for my soul, and I was unmoved by it. Here's the reality. If you have your doubts today, what the Lord does is he says, let's keep talking, let's keep talking. And in that talking, if you find you're unmoved by, by the God who sends the plagues and lives under them on our behalf, if somehow that is un, you are unmoved by such things, you pray. You pray that the Spirit would continue to open your eyes to see that your God is indeed like absolutely no other. Worship team can come up. I, let, me, let me end with two passages. 1 Peter 3.18, it is, it is a passage that, that I find myself going back to almost every day. Christ suffered for sin. He suffered for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So we would know him and he would bring us to himself. That's, that was his purpose in the righteous for the unrighteous. And here's a passage from 1 John 4. This is the kind of love we're talking about. This is from the message. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his sons as sacrifice to clear away our sins and to clear away the damage those sins have done in our relationship with God. Let me pray. Father, as a church, we can safely say we want to know you more clearly. We want to see you. We want our faith to be encouraged, our doubts to be, exp to be expressed to you and to be heard and to be resolved in the greatness of Jesus Christ. Would you make Jesus Christ great before our very eyes.